Good morning. My name is Jeff, if we haven't met. Um, welcome to those of you online as well. Uh, I was on vacation two weeks ago, and then last week, actually, one of my friends is a pastor at an e-free church near where we were vacationing, and he asked me to preach, so I got to be the guest preacher last Sunday, which was really fun, but I'm back. Um, so I thought I'd cover some announcements, uh, and then I'll pray, and we'll dive into the end of a long series, as we'll talk about. Uh, next week, we, are, um, we're, we haven't done an outdoor service, uh, so some of you watching online maybe haven't been here for a while. We haven't done an outdoor service for a long time. So we're looking at maybe doing an outdoor service next Sunday. Uh, again, I'll just ask you to check the website or look for an email around Tuesday or Wednesday. I'd like to get a little closer to Sunday to see what the weather's predicted to be. But it could be fun. We have child dedications next Sunday. Five babies <laughs> uh, getting dedicated. Uh, and if we do outdoor, you all get to see that. If we do indoor, they're probably all going to be second service, and you guys won't get to see that. So... Um, Anyway, so we're looking at that. There's also a water day next week, so it's kind of, could be fun. Anyway, so looking for good weather. So just be looking for communication. Uh, and then I just wanted to call out a couple other things. One of the, our elders met this week, and we just even were talking, what is, what's most important as we head into the fall? And I just, I want to continue to help us build on community and fellowship and family. Actually, our next series is called Home. We're going to talk about a lot of what it means to belong and be a part of a family. But uh, we've had new people come to Crossview during this last 16 months, which is awesome. <laughs> Some great people. So we're actually going to have a new members class relatively soon. I know a few of you are really interested in that. Just want to let you know. As we get into September, we're going to have small groups. We'll be talking more and more about our small groups. We'll be talking about Sunday school. Uh, I think we have three classes for Sunday school that'll be on Sunday mornings. And I'll be doing our discipleship pathway formed again. So just, uh, just be, be thinking about whether, whether there's a good place for you to be involved. Um, and even as we continue to journey through this never-ending pandemic season, we'll even figure out how do we do this. But we want to continue to be meeting together as a church family because it's important. Um, and I will say, we'll talk a little bit about giving this morning because the text will lead us there. But uh, we aren't passing offering plates right now, but we still believe giving is important. We'll even talk about why. Um, but if you want to give, if you feel led to give, you can do that online or mailing in a check or putting anything in the box in the back there. So thanks for being with us. Uh, I think I forgot to say, actually, if you're brand new or relatively new and you haven't gotten one of those welcome bags in the back, grab one. We just want to say thank you for being with us and would love to get to know you if you're here. So let's pray. Uh, Jesus, uh, I think we're just going to be reminded this morning of maybe there are things we already know, but <laughs> some things we've talked about even in this series, but we need to hear things more than once. <laughs> and so would you, would you move, would you stir, uh, would we be excited about you? Uh, because you are amazing. Uh, so meet us where we are and uh, take us where you want us to be. <laughs> In your name we pray, amen. Well, this is the last week, if you're, if you're first Sunday with us, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We have been in this series, we have gone through the book of Corinthians for 20, it's week 24. It's one of the longer series that I've done in Crossview, 
Uh, we started back on February 7th, and it's August, right? We've, it's been a long time. And we've covered, actually, I was looking through, I actually, I went through all my old sermon notes for this last week, because I want to kind of re-emphasize some things that I think are important. That's why I think we'll hit on some things that we've already talked about. But I was pretty shocked at all the things. We've covered some hard things to talk about. <laughs> and I was like, there were some sermons I was kind of nervous to preach, and they ended up being some of my favorites. So we talked about a lot of stuff. That's one of the reasons I like, there's a lot of reasons why we preach through a book of the Bible, but one of them is because we end up talking about things that maybe we wouldn't have picked to talk about, but it comes up, and so we talk about it. I think it's healthy for a church. And I want to remind you, I think it's good to remind you, it'll just give you again a handle for what this letter has been all about, how Paul began his letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I don't have a slide for this, but it's the, the very first few verses. Paul begins this letter to this church in Corinth, written around the year 55. He was in the city of Ephesus, and he's writing to this church that he planted. It says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. He says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, to those set apart, to those made holy, <laughs> called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. We're one family because we confess Jesus as Lord together. Now, I said this back in week one, and I'll say it again. Paul writes to the messed up church in Corinth, and he calls them saints. And I told you at the time, some of you had to take my word for it until we journeyed through this together. Some of you had read the letter before, so you knew what I was talking about. Paul is absolutely theologically correct in calling the Corinthians saints. But if you read through this letter, it's kind of funny. <laughs> These are saints? Again, if you've been with us, all the things that, all the problems, all the issues that Paul has had to work through, I mean, maybe one of the easiest, it's like getting drunk at church. They got drunk at, I mean, when and Paul calls them saints. You and I are called saints. It's a lovely thing to call sinners who are trying to follow Jesus. And I said at the beginning, and I will reiterate now, that we are saints and sinners, <laughs> And you can't land on one and ignore the other. You and I have to learn how to live in the tension of both. We are saints and we are sinners trying to live up to our saintly calling. If we only say we're sinners, we belittle what Christ has done for us. What Christ has accomplished on the cross. This new life that is birthed in us when we're born again. And if we only say we're saints, we become arrogant and blind to our very real shortcomings. It's part of the tension. We have to hold it together. We are sinners and saints who are pressing on to this higher calling in Christ Jesus. And Paul begins this letter reminding them of who they are. And I also think, now that I've journeyed through the letter as a pastor... <laughs> I also, I also think in some ways Paul's reminding himself, okay, these are saints. <laughs> I'm writing to saints because we've got hard things to talk about. And this tension of being a sinner and a saint is tied up into maybe what we could call a larger category, or maybe it's just synonymous with the way Jesus talked about the tension of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is already present and in our midst, that Jesus Christ brought the kingdom, that he's rearranging the world right now. He's Lord right now. We're not waiting on him. He is Lord. And so the kingdom of God is already breaking in our midst, but we know there's evil in the world. 
There's viruses. The world is not the way we want it to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And so the kingdom we know is not yet fully consummated. So we say, as Paul will say at the end of this letter, come, Lord Jesus. Come again. Jesus, return and make all things right. So we live in this tension of the already, not yet. And we have to hold the tension. I said a few weeks back that I think maybe this is an overgeneralization, but I think it's relatively fair to say that the American church primarily leans a little bit too much into the not yet aspect of this tension. I think some of it may be just the secular age that we live in, but we don't always really expect God to do some of the amazing things that he can do in our lives and in the lives of people around us. But the Corinthians, if you've read through this letter, you know they're the opposite. The Corinthians are all already. (laughs) And they're they're already wives. They're already spiritual. There's no not yet. It's all already. (laughs) And I said at the beginning, quite a few few weeks at the beginning, that their biggest problem in Corinth wasn't that they had problems, because every church has problems. And the problems are important to Paul, and he addresses them, and he tries to point them to Jesus and lead them in the way of love and in the way of Jesus as he navigates all their problems. But it does seem the biggest problem that the church in Corinth had was the inability to see their problem. (laughs) They didn't recognize their problems. They were so convinced that they were a finished product, that they had arrived, that they were content to brag and boast even about some of their sins. They were self-assured, self-righteous, and they became one of these things that's really dangerous. If you're a disciple of Jesus who's always growing, the church in Corinth seems to have come, become complacent, just content with where they were. And it does also seem like they were doing a little bit of a trying to, even as they communicated some stuff to Paul, but not everything, they were trying to maintain a perfect image, even though on the inside things were a total mess. That's why I called this series, What Just Happened? I mean, you read through and you think, all this stuff in one church, this is crazy. And if you remember, Paul began, and you can go back and read the first three, four chapters, Paul began really laying a foundation of the cross. And he began with the foolishness of the cross, and we talked about how Jesus on the cross is the ultimate expression of God's wisdom and the, and the true definition of beauty, Jesus on the cross. And so much of what Paul's trying to do is help them, how do you now live out this beauty? Because they weren't living it out. And then I wasn't with you the last two weeks. I haven't heard the sermons yet, but I have been told by several people that Matt and Mark did a great job, so thanks, Matt and Mark, but... Paul ends kind of this letter in chapter 15 with this amazing uh, just proclamation, declaration of the, the importance, the centrality, the necessity, the beauty, and the power of the resurrection. So if you can remember some of the things that Mark talked about, or you can refresh your mind as you skim chapter 15, but Paul is going to just spend all this time talking about this amazing, the resurrection and what it means and why it's so important that Jesus rose from the grave and conquered death and we have so much hope. And then, you know, this is a letter that is written and so there's no chapter breaks. Paul expounds that the resurrection changes everything, changes the way we see everything, changes the way we live, we reevaluate everything in light of the resurrection. And then chapter 16 begins, now concerning the collection for the saints. (laughs) Let me break this down for you. Paul goes straight from preaching the resurrection into the offering. (laughs) 
Paul expounds victory over death, that the great problem facing humanity is that the, gospel, that the gospel solves is the problem of death that threatens to rob life of its meaning. That Paul has just said Christ through death entered into death so that he might defeat death, so that death might no longer have dominion over us, and we say amen. <laughs> the ultimate hope of the Christian is resurrection and the restoration of all things, and then Paul says, so let's take an offering. <laughs> so what's he talking about here? What's this offering? He says, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, on Sunday, the day you gather to celebrate the resurrection, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Paul's going to come visit the church again, and he's got this plan, and what he wants to do, and we'll talk a little bit about what he wants to do with this, but but he said, I don't want to come and just have you just give me like one big lump sum that day. I want you to be putting stuff aside every Sunday. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit. I will take some of you with me by letter or send some of you by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I would go also, then I will accompany you. Well, what, what is these, what, what's going on here? Well, first I would take you back. Again, this is where it gets kind of fun because this is one of these themes that kind of goes through a bunch of Paul's letters as he's shepherding all these churches uh, that are blossoming in light of the resurrection and the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, Back in his letter to the church in Galatia, Paul has talked about how he met with Peter, James, and John, these pillars of the faith. And what they said in chapter 2, verse 10 is, don't forget the poor. And Paul says, I was eager to serve the poor. And so now he's kind of coming true in his promise. What he's trying to do is gather money to take back to The church in Jerusalem, which for a variety of reasons I'm not going to go into today, is struggling. They are facing very hard times. And Paul's going to talk about this collection in several different places. He's going to talk about it in 2 Corinthians because you're going to find out Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth is always hard. (laughs) It's just hard. And so he's going to come back to the collection because it hasn't unfolded the way he wants. But he also talks about this in Romans. And in Romans, he tells us this, yes, it's, it's, it's a way of love. It's generous. We're serving people in need. But it also represents the coming together of the Jews and the Gentiles into one family of God. That's what he says in Romans. And the Gentile churches are now ma- making this gift. And I'm gonna, we're going to send people from the churches and they're going to they're gonna represent the, and, and the and the. And the Christians in Jerusalem are going to be blessed, that the gospel is going forth throughout the world. Some of what's going on, he talks about this letter. I think there's lots of things that could be going on there, but it's likely that Paul just means they didn't have banks, they didn't have Venmo where you just hit your phone and money appears somewhere else. You had to actually carry the money, and so the people were going to carry the money, and usually you would send a letter that says how much money you're sending so that the people carrying the money show up with the same amount of money they left with, right? That's probably a lot that's going on here. And so Paul's just trying to do things in honest ways. Probably a lot we could say here, but, but, but I'll just say this. I think Paul is telling us that the kingdom of God is worth giving to. <laughs> the kingdom of God is worth giving to. These verses are a reminder that kingdom living involves generosity. And I was thinking, and maybe at some point, with everything going on in the world, I'm not sure now is the time At some point, I might do a biblical theology of money. I was listening to somebody else do that not that long ago, and it it is fascinating. When you look at what the Bible, the Bible has a lot to say about money. 
Material abundance is often described in the Bible as a blessing. Moses talks about it that way. The prophets do. Jesus, the apostles, they're not opposed to wealth. Material abundance can be a blessing, and it's kind of, even as you think about what God's heart is for humanity, it's it's part of an inherent goodness that God intends for humans, all humans, to have. But the Bible talks a lot about money because money must be kept in its proper place. Money is a tool for doing good. It's a tool for entering into the goodness of life. Money is a tool for living out the great commandments of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And I don't, I mean, you know this. This isn't new. And maybe you've experienced it and lived it. I know I have. If money becomes an object of trust instead of a tool for doing good, it becomes a problem. If you find yourself saying out loud, or maybe just in your mind, maybe even in your subconscious, I'll be at peace if I have enough money. Then it becomes an object of trust and an idol. And the Bible constantly is telling us, you and I become what we worship. We talk a lot about formation. I tell you, you're always being formed. Are you being formed to be like Jesus or to be like something else? There are idols all around us that are promising things. And when you trust an idol to deliver on something it promises, you always end up naked and ashamed. (laughs) And money is one of those things. It can be a tool for doing good, but if you make it an object of trust, it becomes an idol. And if you've ever worshipped money, you know what I'm talking about. Your life becomes characterized by fear and greed. And it doesn't even matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of money or not very much. If money becomes an object of trust, your life becomes characterized by fear and greed. You become driven by fear and greed. I think money is worshipped in our country today, and that's why there's so much fear and so much greed. Because because people have put their trust in money, and there's this fear, I, I won't have enough. Now, if Jesus is your Lord, you live in a kingdom of abundance, and you know you never have to worry. You will always have your daily bread. But if you trust money, you start to, I, don't, I won't have enough. There's not enough. There's not enough. And, and there's greed. I need more. I need more. I need more. I need more, more, and more. And you never arrive at a place of satisfaction or peace because money can never deliver on that promise that it makes for peace. Money is to be a tool and not a God. And Paul is asking for an offering because our financial life is to be characterized not by fear and greed. It's not very much fun to live that way, is it? Our financial life is to be characterized by trust in Jesus and generosity because our God is generous and we want to be like him. So we trust God and we like to give and we're prone towards generosity. For Paul, the kingdom of God is worth giving to. The church is worth giving to. And and in some ways, I say I'm just reminding you of things you know, because Crossview is a generous church. If you're new here, I want you to know Crossview is a generous church. I mean, our, 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 our giving has been really stable during a very unstable time. And we should sell it. I mean, there's a lot of generosity. And if you, I wish I could tell you all the stories of the Benevolence Fund this year. But there are amazing stories. You are a generous people. 
And you should be excited about that. And we want to be that kind of people because that's who our God is. Well, let's keep reading. Verses 5, we'll kind of journey through verse 14. I will visit you. Paul's going to give them plans. Now, what's funny is, I don't know if it's funny. I think it's funny. Paul's going to give them plans, and he's not actually going to do this. And then the Corinthians are going to be really mad about it. And so then he's got to address it in 2 Corinthians. Well, this is why I didn't do what I said I was going to do. He's got a great relationship, right? So. Verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. I, don't, I do not want to see you now just in passing. I don't want to just pop in. and I don't want to eat and run, right? I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. I want to be with you, but I will stay in Ephesus. That's where he is until Pentecost. Listen to verse 9. We could say a lot more about it. This is just ministry, I think. This is life in the kingdom of God right now. In the tension of the already not yet. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. Because that's what happens when you follow Jesus. He's going to open doors for you to do effective work in his name. And there are many adversaries. You just got to realize that. A wide wide door is open for Paul. Effective work outweighs any obstacle or adversity. It's hard. But I'm staying because God has opened this door for me. And I'm going to deal with the heart. As long as people are waking up to Jesus, encountering Jesus, the church is worth it all. (laughs) That's kind of what he's saying. Verse 10, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. I love this. Paul has several co-workers, and Timothy and Titus are two of the ones we know the best, partly because there's letters written to them. And you get the sense that Titus is somebody that Paul and him kind of like, they just see things perfectly, they work similarly, and when things are hard, Paul just sends Titus in and doesn't have to tell him what, he just knows. Titus is going, he's going to take care of it. Timothy, though, is younger and seems to have less of a who cares personality, less of a forceful personality, I guess you could say. Put, uh, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am, so don't let no one despise him. Treat him well. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me for I am expecting him with the brothers. It's, a, it's almost like Paul is saying, don't pull on Timothy what you pulled on me. <laughs> just be nice to him. I mean, just don't, don't mistreat him. Speak with love and grace. Treat him well. <laughs> Verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now, and he will come when he has the opportunity. Again, if you've been with us through the whole journey, one of the one of the divisions or the faction, factions that were happening in the church in Corinth is people were saying, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Peter. Now, it might have been because they just preferred their teaching style, but it also might have been because Apollos was Greek, and the Greeks were like, I like Apollos. And Paul was Roman, and the Romans were like, I like Paul. And Peter was Jewish, and the Jews were like, I like Peter. <laughs> And Paul's like, we don't do that anymore in the kingdom of God. We're all of one family. And he's even showing here, Apollos and I are on great terms. And I urged him to come to you. But Apollos isn't going to come because it's not a good time for him, right? It's just, there's a lot going on. And then, verse 13 and 14. These are, these are good verses. You know, we're at the end of the letter. This is his farewell thoughts. And he's going to kind of, it's just a charge. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. I want to talk a bit about that. The, the literal translation says, act like men, which I'm sure your women are like, sweet, thanks, that's awesome. 
I mean, the, if you're going kind of thought for thought, you can just, it, be courageous. Be courageous. Be strong. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. In verse 14, lest you think we talk too much about love around here, or you weren't here when we preached through chapter 13, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. So let's, I want to talk a little bit about this standing firm and again remind you of some of the things that we've talked about in terms of what it means to follow Paul as he follows and imitates Jesus into this way of love. The easy thing to say to our current day and age is choose courage, not comfort. We tend to choose comfort over courage way too often because it's easier. We drift towards comfort. Paul's saying, no, don't choose comfort. Choose courage. Be watchful. Stand firm. And again, I know we're still in the midst of these un- unpredictable times. And I know as things are coming, some people, I don't want things, I don't, I don't want things to change again, right? I, we can't control our circumstances. And so I think I want to say to you, church, stand firm when you can't control your circumstances. Don't try to just force your agenda and what you want. But follow Jesus. Learn to love like Jesus. Learn to stand firm. Throughout this letter, Paul has presented another way. Take up your cross. Now, Paul has called it foolishness because it looks like loss and it feels like death. But, and I think I talked about this back when we were looking at some of these early chapters, but if Jesus is our model for everything, and I believe he is, and you just go back to maybe one of the most obvious times when it seemed like Jesus could have tried to control his circumstances and he didn't, it's back in Gethsemane. Jesus did not try to control his circumstances. He didn't even try to control Judas, right? He presented us with a model of discipleship where we take up our cross too because for all of us, there's dying along the way. Jesus said in some of his great teaching on discipleship that if you, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. If you, if you cling to your life, you'll lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life for Jesus' sake, you'll find it. In other words, if you hold on so tightly to your life, you begin to distort it and crush it. And you become distorted in what you were never meant to be. And Jesus says there's another way. Paul has been trying to show the church in Corinth there's another way. And I remember saying this a few weeks ago, is Jesus a fool? (laughs) Was Paul a fool for following Jesus? And I said, no. This is what we learn in chapter 15. Because the cross is a portal. Jesus gets raised after the cross and it changes everything. The cross is a portal to new life. There's another side of things where in Jesus we find everything that we truly need. I like to summarize it by saying that in Jesus, you have nothing to hide, and you have nothing to fear, and you have nothing to prove, and you have no one to please. I know I say that a lot, but you often ask me to repeat it, so I like to repeat it. 
I mean, that's what happens when you follow Jesus into death and allow him to raise you to new life. You, you don't have to be afraid of not having enough because you know it's an abundant kingdom in Christ. You don't have to be grasping in for more and more because you know that God will personally guarantee your fair share when his kingdom comes. I mean, there's just so much good news. Paul knew what physical deprivation meant. Paul's reward for being an apostle of Jesus was often insult, persecution, and slander. But Paul responded according to the teachings of Jesus. And the end result of all this was that the dirt scoured from the world was poured upon him and his apostolic co-laborers. And they then acted as cleansing agents, taking to themselves hate and malice and bitterness. And by absorbing this without violent or vengeful response, they took away those evils. And in a particular way, they were carrying on the work of Jesus, who absorbed ultimately the sins of the world and responded with love and forgiveness. In other words, Paul and his fellow workers stood firm. They did everything in love. A radical, not not the surfacey love that our culture talks about, but radical love defined by Jesus. When cursed, when persecuted, when slandered, Paul responds with love. He overcomes, as he says in Romans, he overcomes evil with good. And so I want to say, I want to say it this way, but give me a second to explain exactly what I mean, because I don't want you to mishear me. But the church is called to stand firm. The church is called to stand against evil. The church isn't really by Paul called to fight against evil. So let me, let me explain. Don't, don't take that the wrong way. But there's another passage where Paul kind of engages in this warfare language. And he still is primarily going to call you to stand. It's in Ephesians chapter 6. You can read it. It's when you put on the armor of God. Paul says, put on the armor of God so you can stand against the devil. In fact, as all this stuff is raging in our world with this virus and with other people, one of the wise people in our church, I've heard him say twice this week, kind of quoting Paul, that our enemy is not, our our struggle is not against our enemies in flesh and blood. We need to remember that. Our struggle is not against our enemies of flesh and blood because Jesus says we're to love them. Maybe our struggle is with this virus, our struggle is with the enemy himself, the great enemy, the devil. So we're called to stand against evil, to be something other. There is real evil in the world, that's why God's judgment is good news. He's going to judge the evil. But as we await his coming, we're called to stand our ground and not go along with evil. You and I aren't formed by evil, we are formed by Jesus, and so we stand with him. We will stand firm and we will not back down even if we're martyred (laughs) because we will overcome evil with good. And and maybe this is a a more direct way of saying it. This This is why I say it this way. What I've seen, and I've seen a little bit of this in the last 16 months in the church at large, if we try to fight evil, the temptation to use evil becomes too great for us. It's too strong of a temptation. We are tempted to use the means of evil against evil. 
And I told you we're always being formed. And so if you use the means of evil to fight evil, you become evil. The evil infects you. You become the evil that you started out fighting. It's one of the oldest tricks in the devil's book. And he keeps doing it because it keeps working. But you and I have learned from Jesus to stand firm. To overcome evil with good. And we're not afraid even of death. Because why? Because we believe in the resurrection. (laughs) Because we believe that Jesus has entered death and in some way that I can't explain to you has filled death with his life. So we have nothing to fear. Let's read these next few verses here. Almost done. Verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I love, this is really all we know about Stephanus and his household, but we know that they, they live to serve. So keep that in mind. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit. This is why why we can't forsake gathering together. Because being together is some of what refreshes our spirit. So I know it's trying times. We still have to figure out ways to do this, right? As well as yours, give recognition to such men, to such people. I mean, Paul's got plenty of people that he's frustrated with in Corinth, but he holds up. We don't know much about him. He he holds them up because these are people who serve. They, They, in a sense, in Corinth, embody what love looks like. Paul says, recognize them. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, or you might know her as Priscilla, I mean, they were in Rome, and then they obviously were in Corinth, and they, right now they're in Ephesus with Paul. They're going to be back in Rome. This is a dynamic missionary couple that was traveling around. Together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers and sisters send you greetings. And then again, I always, I always laugh. Greet one another with a holy kiss. <laughs> we don't do that at all, right? I did spend time in a, co- in a country where it was like common to greet people and you would like rub cheeks and kiss in the air. Maybe that's some of what they did. But the early church, it was part of being a family. They, were, they weren't just acquaintances. They, they were family. And so they greeted one another with a kiss. And then these final verses. Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. So one of the things that then becomes, if you, if you studied Paul's letters, you realize he, he didn't write most of his letters, if any of them. Uh, it seems that he, he likely, he either had them pre-written or he likely dictated them. There's a bunch of questions on why that was, but I, I kind of right now, this I present to you, I, I kind of think... Maybe one of the best reasons, maybe his handwriting was just real sloppy. I kind of like to think about that. Like maybe he just wrote too big and parchment was expensive and he's just hard to read and he didn't want to be giving churches like things they couldn't read. And so he had somebody else, because I actually think he probably had some, I think Corinthians is a well-crafted, it's too well-crafted to just be coming out of his head. So I actually bet he had some stuff written down. He had some notes he was working with, and then he was kind of dictating it. And somebody else who had, who had nicer handwriting was writing it out. But at the end, Paul takes the letter, and they're going to see his sloppy, large handwriting. But he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, he doesn't, he doesn't end with, and all's going to be well, all be well. <laughs> 
If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Which sounds super strong, but also does get to the heart of things. This all begins and ends with Jesus. That's where salvation is found. It all has to do with our response to Jesus. What's your response to Jesus? And then he says, actually, in Aramaic, not in Greek, Maranatha, our Lord, come, come, Jesus, bring your kingdom. (laughs) This church is a mess. Come now. I don't want to fix this stuff. How do you do this? Verses 23 and 24, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, and my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Paul closes, this shouldn't surprise you, with grace and love. The grace of the Lord, hear this again in a world where we live with so much fear of scarcity. The grace of the Lord is more than adequate to meet every one of your needs. And we all, we all struggle with worshiping idols. We all do it. And we have to repent and we come here and we realign and worship Jesus. But I just want you to hear this again. Jesus Christ will do everything he's promised. So if you're going to bank your life and trust anything, trust Jesus because he will deliver. And you and I are constantly running to all kinds of places to find peace and satisfaction. Run to Jesus. He will never let you down. We talked about grace and I quoted a line from a song, but grace, I can't make it, I can't fake it, and I can't afford it, but it's mine. (laughs) It's a free gift in Jesus, and we celebrate it. And after all the struggles that Paul had gone through with the church, I hope you see in this last verse, Paul's love remained. It was permanent. They could not break that bond, and he wanted them to remember its strength, even if they had slandered him and misrepresented it. And it's going to get worse if you get into 2 Corinthians. Paul confesses his love for the church. Nobody's been hurt by the church more than the Apostle Paul. His integrity's been attacked, his character misrepresented, his motives are questioned again and again. And it does kind of sometimes raise the question, why doesn't Paul just shut this church down? At what point amongst the incest and prostitution and getting drunk at church does Paul not say, you guys are beyond hope? I mean, we got to start over. This project in Corinth, I'm, just, I'm focusing on Ephesus and Philippi and Thessalonica. Like, I'm going to set my sights towards Rome and Spain, but Corinth, that was a lost cause. Paul never does that because he believes that the love of Jesus has the power to change everything and everyone, doesn't he? Paul writes this letter because he believes that Jesus can straighten out this mess. Paul never gives up on the church. And this whole letter is a call to love. For the Apostle Paul, the church is worth loving. Even when it's a mess. It's a beautiful mess. All the issues that they had, it seems Paul really does think, if you can learn to love as Jesus has loved you, you'll figure it out. Because Jesus is the master. So I want to end, I wanna, I'm going to read something I read at the beginning. It's good to remind ourselves where Paul's heart lay. He, he talked about his love for them in Christ Jesus. Because we can easily read the whole letter merely as an argumentative tract, almost bossy sometimes, setting the Corinthians right about this and that as though his only concern was to lick them into shape. 
It wasn't. His central concern here and throughout his life and work was quite simply Jesus. Paul couldn't stop talking about Jesus because without Jesus, nothing else he said or did made any sense. And what he wants the Corinthians to get hold of most of all, and and maybe what you and I need to get hold of most of all, is what it means to have Jesus at the middle of your story, the center of your life, your thoughts, your imagination. Paul believes if they can do that, all the other issues that run to and fro through the letter will sort themselves out. So I'll come to you offering you Jesus. I preached at another church last week, had a lot of fun. And that's what I told them. I said, all I have to offer you this morning is Jesus. And I actually just preached a sermon. I mean, they're they're preaching through James. So I preached a sermon I had preached here, there. (laughs) And it was really interesting. I wasn't trying to do anything different. And and, uh, several people came up to me. I mean, they were just excited about Jesus. It turns out people are really excited about Jesus, and we should be. And one person was just like, I don't remember the last time I heard a pastor say the name of Jesus that many times in the sermon. And he loved it. And I was like, that's good. We should be excited about Jesus. So here's what I want to say. These are tricky times. And I don't know that the next few weeks are going to get easier. I want them to be. I do. I want you to be comfortable and life to be. I just don't know that it's going to be. Things just don't seem to be getting easier, do they? Please, please, please don't put your hope in money. And don't put your hope in circumstances. Put your hope in Jesus Christ. And he may satisfy you and give you peace in ways you never thought possible, in ways you didn't even know to ask. But he's just that good. (laughs) That's who he is. Now, one more thing that kind of is tied to this text. I'm going to invite Matt up. Matt's got a a few things that he's going to share with our church and I thought this was a good text. Matt's been thinking and praying about things for a little bit with his family. And it's a good text for Matt to come up and share. Because chapter 16 reminds us that, that the global church, people are moving around, right? And sometimes people are coming and joining a church. They've moved, they've come. Sometimes people are coming to Christ. And sometimes we're sending people with our blessing to go bless other communities. So I'm going to invite Matt to come up. You can kind of guess, but he's got a little story to share, and then we'll pray, and then we'll sing. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, Beloved Crossview, as you know, the Calio family is growing, and uh, Brenda and I have learned a lot about being new parents and how to be the best parents that we can be. Uh, Some things we've learned are uh, we've learned how to love in more deeper and meaningful ways than we ever thought was possible, to sacrifice many hours of sleep, (laughs) to adjust our personal schedules so that we can keep Shiloh alive, and I'm really glad that we haven't messed that up so so bad. We've also learned to celebrate with friends and church family and to ask for help. And trust me, it's hard to ask for help. Well, we've realized that uh, we need more help than we anticipated. And with different things going on in our families, we've decided it's best for us to move closer to Brenda's family in California. To have some extra support with raising Shiloh and to also give Shiloh the opportunity to grow up with her cousins. So we'll be moving at the end of September, 
These last three years have been amazing to serve you as your worship pastor. In many ways, you have ministered to me uh, in way, in many more ways than I have sought to minister to you. And I'm forever grateful for all that God has done through you here. Um, so I truly am a, a better husband and a father and pastor because of how well you have discipled me. Uh, so I'm going to soak up every Sunday from now through the end of September to lead you in worship of our risen King. Thank you. I know there's always lots of responses to news like that. So you have time to work through, and it's sad to say. A mixed joy in sending off a friend and sadness because we love Matt and Brenda and Shiloh. But let's, I mean, I'll tell you, we, we have things, I think we have, some, we have some ways of transitioning through this that I think will be okay and we'll be all right. Um, but first we want to just celebrate Matt and Brenda and we'll worry about details at another day. Just want to celebrate with them what God's doing in their life. So let's pray for Matt and Brenda and for our church. Uh, Jesus, you really did send Matt to us in a time when we needed him. And I think he's done a beautiful job to add to the beauty of our church family. Uh, We got to watch (laughs) this romance unfold between him and Brenda. Uh, We get to dedicate Shiloh next week as the church family that she was born into. And uh, there's just so much that we're grateful for. And in many ways, I think we probably feel like the early church. There were comings and goings. I mean, obviously, Aquila and Priscilla blessed a lot of churches. Paul was here and there. And this is just part of what it means to be a global family. And it's part of why we look forward to the new creation, because we will all be together with no time limitations, because eternity will change a lot. Um, So we're sad and we're happy. Maybe we don't even know what we're feeling right now. But what we want to do is love Matt and Brenda and send them well. Uh, just, just pray. Just pray that they would, they would find a church family and find a home. And Shiloh would have amazing friends. And, um, and just pray that you would help Matt even through these next few weeks as he navigates this in-between season. And uh, just really bless us with the best of Matt Calio <laughs> um, as we're grateful for his service to us. In your name we pray. Amen.